RipperCast presents 10 Weeks in Whitechapel, an audio series based on the blog 10 Weeks in Whitechapel, written and narrated by Carl Kopak, and featuring the voices of Catherine Amin, Paul Begg, Neil R.A. Bell, Andrew Firth, Michael Hawley, Philip Hutchison, Steve McDermott, John Reese, Ali Ryder, Adam Stevens, Callum Williams, Gareth Williams, Ian Wilson, and Keeley Wilson. Week 3, The Murder of Annie Chapman. Will you? 8th September, 1888. Following the murder of Polly Nichols in Books Row, the Metropolitan Police had their suspicions as to the culprit, or culprits, and thought it would only be a matter of time before the guilty were brought to justice. Any number of violent gangs of the East End, who blackmailed prostitutes or simply extorted them wherever possible, fell under the watchful gaze of Metropolitan H Division. When Emma Elizabeth Smith was attacked in April 1888, as she claimed by a group of assailants rather than one murderous man, it justified that belief. Once arrested and questioned, it would not be long before gang members would willingly give up their former pals in order to save themselves. However, though they didn't realise it at that point, the police were about to deal with the more untraceable assassin, one who had no link whatsoever to his prey. Even in 1888, the majority of attacks and murders were conducted by people who knew the victims and were thus easier to apprehend. But the deaths of Martha Tabram and Polly Nichols led the authorities to new and horrifying ground. Intense media pressure didn't help. Come the late 1880s, numerous newspapers and broadsheets sprung up with barely disguised agendas against the police and the Home Office. They wanted to know just how the biggest city in the world, which sat at the very hub of the Empire, could fail to protect its own daughters. The simple truth was that the police were trying to find the smallest of needles in an ever-growing haystack. Their man looked no different from the tens of thousands of innocent city dwellers who strolled about Whitechapel each day, while his targets were equally keen to avoid police interference as they went about their business. How could you protect women who led potential killers into places where they could be murdered? It was on or around the day of the Bucks Row atrocity that another prostitute was attacked in Whitechapel. This time, though, it was not a murder, but a fight between two destitute women. Accounts vary into how the brawl came about, but the outcome was that a woman called Eliza Cooper gave another, a 48-year-old named Annie Chapman, a black eye and bruised chest. Depending on which tale you prefer, the women were rivals for the affection of a local man, Edward Stanley, and either fought over him, a halfpenny piece, or an unreturned cake of soap. Not a story to excite the papers. Either way, Annie was not well, and upon bumping into her friend Amelia Parker a day or so later, told that she was meant to go to Stratford, but fell too ill. However, she would have to earn some money for her lodgings in Crossingham's lodging house at 35 Dorset Street, Spitalfields, so she would have to go out. This is the first time that Dorset Street is mentioned in the case, but it won't be the last. Generally known as the worst street in London, and was renowned for being the epicentre of local crime, a kind of Victorian Moss Isley. Crowded with lodging houses and dimly lit pubs, it was where people went when they had the lowest point of their lives. In 1963, some 75 years after the murder, the writer Ralph L. Finn described it thus. It was a street of whores. There is, I always feel, a subtle difference between an whore and a prostitute. 
at least we used to think so. Prozies were younger and more attractive. Whores were debauched old bags. It teemed with nasty characters. Desperate, wicked, lecherous, razor-slashing hoodlums. No Jews lived there. Only a few bold chutes, immigrant Dutch Jews, had the temerity even to walk through it. There were pubs every few yards, bawdy houses every few feet. It was peopled by roaring, drunken, fighting mad killers. Annie came to Dorset Street by an all-too-familiar route. She was once a semi-respectable woman living in Windsor, working along with her husband John in domestic service. However, she was a notorious drinker and soon became something of an embarrassment to her employers. The couple split up in 1884, possibly because of her habits, though John too had alcohol issues, and Annie moved to London. She had three children by then, Emily Ruth, Annie Georgia and John. Emily died of meningitis aged 11, while John was a cripple and in the care of a charitable school. There was clearly some affection remaining from the marriage, as John still paid Annie an allowance of 10 shillings a week, made payable to the Commercial Street Post Office. This meant that, at the time, she did not have to resort to prostitution. Indeed, she added to her income by crochet work and selling flowers. However, in 1886, John died, succumbing to dropsy and cirrhosis of the liver, and the payment stopped. It tore Annie's world apart, and she soon caught a melancholy figure who would often discuss her cruel look. As she became hopelessly addicted to alcohol, with little means of paying for it, she sank and sank before finding herself in Dorset Street, like so many before her. She soon became a fixture around Spitalfields, and was known either as Dark Annie or Annie Sivvy, as she once took up with a man who sold sieves. She was known for her good teeth, a rarity then, and striking blue eyes. She was small and stout. Dorset Street no longer exists. In 1904 the name was changed to Duval Street, but even that was demolished in the 1920s to make way for the London Fruit and Wool Exchange building. It was reduced further to being nothing more than a service road between the exchange and a rather unappealing car park. It is now completely demolished, and today it's merely a building site. The only surviving mainstays from that time are the Ten Bells pub on the corner of Commercial Street and Fournier Street, and Christchurch, the Nicholas Hawksmoor church which dominates the area. Any passers-by today will see the same edifices that Annie looked at as she hobbled around the streets looking for clients. That past still lives today in Spitalfields. Although the murders had scared the local unfortunates, they still had to make a living, and on the late evening of the 7th of September, a week after the murder of Polly Nichols, and early hours of Saturday the 8th, Annie Chapman found herself in such a predicament. She had no money for her DOS, and was desperate for funds. The house deputy manager at Crossingham's, one Timothy Donovan, had allowed her to sit in the kitchen early that day, and did so again at around 11.30pm. She claimed to have been in the infirmary all week, though there's no record to show that she did. It's more likely that she just picked up some medicine or other. She certainly had some pills in her possession. A fellow inmate of the lodging house, William Stevens, said that the box in which she kept them had broken, so she'd wrapped them in a piece of envelope, which she'd found on the mantelpiece. This would become relevant later. She headed out to the Britannia pub, locally known as Ringers, after the publican, which is on the corner of Dorset Street and Commercial Street. She returned at around 1.30am, a little worse for drink. The night watchman, John Evans, who went by the nickname of Brummy, told her that she must leave if she couldn't pay for her DOS. She agreed, but went looking for Donovan, with whom she had the following exchange. I haven't sufficient money for a bed, but don't let it. I shall not be long before I'm in. You can find money for your beer when you can't find money for your bed? Never mind, Tim. 
I shall soon be back. Don't let the bed. Polly Nichols had had almost the same conversation in nearby Thrall Street a week earlier. A short walk from Dorset Street, behind the Ten Bells, lies Hanbury Street. It was at the other end of Hanbury Street where Robert Paul and Charles Lechmere met the policemen to report the body of Polly Nichols. Spitalfields lies about half a mile further to the west of that point. Number 29 was on the north side of the street and consisted of a three-storey building with an attic area and a cellar. There were eight rooms in which 17 people lived. The owner, Mrs Amelia Richardson, ran a packing case business in the cellar, while the right-hand side of the building consisted of a cat's meat shop. Note, that's meat for cats, not as some suggest, meat made from cats. Such was the transitory nature of its inhabitants, the front door was seldom locked. A small passageway ran through the building and led to a yard which had an outhouse. Enterprising prostitutes were always on the lookout for a quiet area to bring their clients, so it wasn't uncommon for residents to find strangers about the place. After all, there could be no passing policeman in a backyard. Equally, there was no way the police could protect anyone who was in there with a strange man. At 4.45 on the morning of the 8th of September, Amelia Richardson's son, John, sat on the steps overlooking the backyard. He was having some difficulty with one of his boots and tried to trim a wayward piece of leather with a house knife. He gave up and went to work five minutes later. He saw nothing unusual. At 5am, a market worker, Mrs Elizabeth Long, left her house in Church Street on her way to work. Dawn had broken nine minutes earlier. She would later state that she heard the clock in the Black Eagle Brewery on Brick Lane sound the time as she passed down Hanbury Street. It was 5.30 as she approached number 29, where she saw a couple talking outside. The woman was Annie Chapman, who was facing her. The man had her back to her, but she noticed he was wearing a brown deerstalker hat and was of a... Shabby genteel appearance. By which she meant good clothes which had faded with age and damage. She heard a brief snatch of dialogue. Will you? Yes. The man, who was only a little taller than the woman, and he was five feet tall, had a foreign accent. At 5.15, next door in number 27, a man called Albert Kadosh entered the yard next door to relieve himself. He heard voices from over the fence, though the only word he was able to make out was... No! The poor man was suffering from a urinary infection, so there were many trips to the yard in the night. At 5.30am, he returned to the yard and heard the sound of someone slumping against the fence. His curiosity was not sufficiently aroused, as he knew full well what the yard was used for. He went back indoors without further investigation. Shortly before 6am, John Davis, a resident at 29, entered the backyard. He would never forget the sight that met his eyes. Annie was lying on her back, parallel with the fence, which was to her left. Her head was about two feet from the back wall and six to nine inches left of the bottom step. Her legs were bent at the knees. Her feet were flat on the ground, pointing towards the shed. Her dress was pushed above her knees. Her left arm lay across her left breast, her right arm at her side. The small intestines still attached by a cord and part of the abdomen lay above her right shoulder. Two flaps of skin from the lower abdomen lay in a large quantity of blood above the left shoulder. Her throat was deeply cut in a jagged manner. A neckerchief was around her neck. Davis ran straight into the street and confronted two men, James Green and James Kent, and told them about the body while in an understandable state of panic. Another man, Henry Holland, arrived and went into the yard while the others stood in the passage. They soon went their separate ways to summon the police. An inspector Chandler arrived to find a crowd in the passageway. 
He soon cleared the area and sent for the divisional surgeon, Dr. George Baxter Phillips, who duly arrived in minutes. He later announced, Estimated time of death was viewed as around 4.30am. This has been a discussion point for many years. Phillips seems adamant that this was the time of death, but Kadosh, Long and Richardson are only at their stations by an hour later. Bearing in mind we were sitting at 4.45am, did John Richardson really not notice a ripped and decaying corpse directly in front of him? Doubt it. Granted, there are discrepancies between the statements. Kadosh was convinced he heard no 15 minutes before Longer passed the couple, but this is the medico's judgment which is most out of kilter. One thing was for certain, and that was that the murderer had started to find his feet. While Polly Nichols had been ripped, her slaying was nothing compared to the Chapman murder. Baxter Phillips, according to press reports, gave a more detailed description of the wounds. He noticed the same protrusion of the tongue. There was a bruise over the right temple. On the upper eyelid there was a bruise, and there were two distinct bruises, each the size of a man's thumb, on the forepart of the top of the chest. The stiffness of the limbs was now well marked. There was a bruise over the middle part of the bone on the right hand. There was an old scar on the left of the frontal bone. The stiffness was more noticeable on the left side, especially in the fingers, which were partly closed. There was an abrasion over the ring finger, with distinct markings of a ring or rings. The throat had been severed as before described. The incisions into the skin indicated that they had been made from the left side of the neck. There were two distinct clean cuts on the left side of the spine. They were parallel with each other and separated by about half an inch. The muscular structures appeared as though an attempt had been made to separate the bones of the neck. There were various other mutilations to the body, but he was of the opinion that they occurred subsequent to the death of the woman and to the large escape of blood from the division of the neck. The deceased was far advanced in disease of the lungs and membranes of the brain, but they had nothing to do with the cause of death. The stomach contained little food, but there was no sign of fluid. There was no appearance of the deceased having taken alcohol, but there were signs of great deprivation, and he should say she had been badly fed. He was convinced she had not taken any strong alcohol for some hours before her death. The injuries were certainly not self-inflicted. The bruises on the face were evidently recent, especially about the chin and side of the jaw, but the bruises in front of the chest and temple were of longer standing, probably of days. He was of the opinion that the person who cut the deceased's throat took hold of her by the chin and then commenced the incision from left to right. He thought it was highly probable that a person could call out, but with regard to an idea that she might have been gagged, he could only point to the swollen face and the protruding tongue, both of which were signs of suffocation. The abdomen had been entirely laid open. The intestines, severed from their mesenteric attachments, had been lifted out of the body and placed on the shoulder of the corpse, whilst on the pelvis, the uterus and its appendages, with the upper portion of the vagina and the posterior two-thirds of the bladder, had been entirely removed. No trace of these parts could be found and the incisions were cleanly cut, avoiding the rectum and dividing the vagina low enough to avoid injury to the cervix uteri. Obviously the work was that of an expert, of one at least, who had such knowledge of anatomical or pathological examinations as to be enabled to secure the pelvic organs with one sweep of the knife, which must therefore have been at least five or six inches in length, probably more. The appearance of the cuts confirmed him in the opinion that this instrument, like the one which divided the neck, had been of a very sharp character. 
The mode in which the knife had been used seemed to indicate great anatomical knowledge. Now that last sentence was vital. The inference being that Jack knew what he was doing. That said, it's important to note that this does not necessarily mean that the Ripper was a mad doctor, as so many depictions on screen have had him. Merely that he had some rudimentary knowledge of anatomy. A horse slaughterer, for example, would know the best way to kill with the minimum fuss, and Jack was not a messy murderer when it came to the actual ending of life. The police had already noted that he had cut Polly Nichols' throat from left to right, slicing the left carotid artery and thus minimalising the spray of blood. An amateur, choosing right to left, would be covered in an instant. Also, it seemed that he first throttled his victims to render them insensible and lower their blood pressure before cutting their throats, which would also result in a less bloody kill. He'd thought ahead, even though his choice of prey was seemingly random. Phillips also noted that Annie's personal effects, two combs, a piece of coarse muslin, and a ripped piece of envelope containing the letter M and the stamp of the Royal Sussex Regiment, lay at Annie's feet. Rather, he felt they were specifically placed or laid there, though he couldn't say why. He also noted that there was a bruise on her finger where a brass ring had been torn off. What could a man want with such a useless cheap trinket? Then again, what could he want with her bladder? The police were interested in that envelope. Remember that Martha Tabram and her friend Pearlie Pole had been seen with two military men on the night of that murder? However, it wasn't long before William Stevens told them about the lodging house incident with the pillbox and the torn off envelope. It was around this time that the name of a suspect came up, not from the police as such, but from the people who knew the area. A man known as Leather Apron would hang around the streets and was known to threaten prostitutes with a knife. Desperate for any lead, Whitechapel H Division investigated further. Then they saw it. In the yard of 29 Hambridge Street, not two feet from Annie Chapman's eviscerated corpse, lay a saturated leather apron. The press went to town on the discovery and there was also some relief for the police. On the Monday following the murder, Sergeant William Thick called at 22 Mulberry Street and arrested John Pizer. Thick had known Pizer for 18 years and recognised that this was the man they wanted. Pizer had acquired the nickname as he wore a leather apron in his work as a boot finisher. Furthermore, in accordance with Elizabeth Strong's description, he was a Polish Jew. Pizer was aware of the press reports and that the East End was baying for blood, so he kept quiet. He dare not go to the police himself lest he be torn to pieces by a lynch mob. He seemed almost relieved when Thick arrived. Of course, he wasn't the murderer. On the night of the Nichols murder, he was in Holloway, a fair distance away, staying at Crossham's lodging house, not to be confused with Crossingham's of Dorset Street. He, like many EastEnders, had watched the fire at Shadwell Dry Dock on the night of the Books Row murder. Furthermore, he had chatted to both the house owner and two policemen about it several miles away from the incident. He had a similarly strong alibi for the Chapman killing. He later received payment from the press for damaging his reputation, which seems only fair. Not a good man by any stretch, but also not a psychotic serial killer. As for the apron in the yard of 29 Hanby Street, it belonged to a resident there. His mother had washed it and left it outside to dry overnight. The public was still not satisfied and demanded vengeance. Local idiots didn't help. On the evening of the murder the fantastically named Emmanuel Delbast Violina of Hambury Street, told the police that he'd seen a man threatening a woman with a knife that morning outside number 29. Upon Pizer's arrest, he picked him out of a police lineup, but it became clear that the man was just seeking attention as his story changed on several occasions. He was eventually reprimanded for wasting police time. Another interesting suspect arose in the Prince Albert pub, which stood at the corner of Brushfield Street, 
which lay to the north and parallel to Dorset Street, and Stewart Street. The wife of the proprietor, the equally splendid named Mrs Fiddymont, was in the bar at 7am, an hour after the murder, with her friend Mary Chapel, when a man came in and ordered half a pint of four ale. She noticed that he had blood spots on the back of his hands and appeared anxious. He saw the ladies looking at him through a mirror at the back of the bar, so swallowed his drink in one gulp and strode out. They followed him, but lost him almost immediately. A few days later, Inspector Aberline later arrested a butcher called Jacob Eisenschmidt, who is known locally as the Mag Pork Butcher. Eisenschmidt was also violent, and was seen with a large knife, but Aberline lacked the evidence to hold him. The fact that he was clearly insane didn't help. He was sent to the Islington Workhouse and then to Bow Infirmary. He fits Mrs. Vidimont's description perfectly, but was not the Ripper, and the murders continued when Eisenschmidt was miles away. Luckily for him, though, he wasn't lynched. Annie Chapman was buried in an unmarked grave in Manor Park Cemetery. The family asked that the funeral be kept secret from the press, finally affording her at least some dignity. Today, 29 Hanbury Street is nothing more than a private car park. Access is available at weekends when it becomes an indoor market, but there's nothing to mark the spot where she met her death. It wasn't much of a life for Annie, and her exit from it was demeaning to say the least. Ripped to pieces next to a urine-soaked fence in a backyard which nobody cared about. It will be three weeks before the murderer struck again. A long delay giving the other killings, but on this occasion, one was not enough. And Whitechapel awoke to not one, but two murders. <laughs> 